Beyond, beyond. Two years after the conference, Yuta Kurta. Now I find myself in the middle of compiling notes on what is to become another project, one leading to another, painting thought as well as painting discourse, taking its own sweet time. Yes, that is the process of becoming. The fateful fortune of becoming a painter and paintings finally becoming updated, altered in the spring of two thousand fifteen. Perhaps it started at the conference two years ago, on a Monday morning around ten a.m., on the very first day of the conference titled "Painting as Subject." The conference carried a no less demanding title, "Painting Beyond Itself." The artist here felt on high alert, since this was Harvard, more than serious business. She brought everything she was carrying around at that time. And tried to earnestly construct an argument out of the tossed and torn fragments of discussions, suggested histories, discourse leftovers, along with all kinds of experiments, such as Andrungen Allerart, all kinds of alterations, a tailoring service for painting, which meant radical re and de involvements of the body in the activity of altering, refitting, reframing as well. But there was no standard pattern of repair. The only thing she could rely on was a kind of particular faith in love for painting, and her own history of searching, researching, what had happened prior to the act of performing painting as subject. But what really turned out in the end, painting like the subject, is absented and abstracted into space. Therefore, thoroughly questioning and existentially critiquing the making of one's love is not an easy task. One of the moves in speaking on the topic of painting as subject was to suggest a direct encounter with fragmented experience of the audience, untimely but precisely so, a kind of Artodian theater of cruelties, not done with twitches and screams of the body. But with the technical tricks of various mediums used these days to speak about painting, as well as in such glitches and in texts and sounds accompanied by an erratic, malfunctioning slideshow at an irregular pace. So some of the ingredients to construct set parameters for a morning freak-out breakdown, tune-in collapse moment, was music, video clip fragments. And a metal sign I had found about a week prior to the event, a flat object, cut in the shape of schematized bottle, painted black, with some letters that were originally printed on it, forming the word pain. This assisted ready-made turned into a living weapon. Painting as subject, each part of the painting moved toward its opposite. All in all. A bit perverse and a bit violent, nothing stayed in place. Not on the stage of painting, not in her life. All of it forming what could be described as an unstable tableau vivant. That's what she practiced. What happened and what happened after and with through it. Like a window in the making of painting, the moments before and after. 
This window is a part of the studio. Oh well. Did you see how she made herself the fate of something? Became the stranger on the train of painting? New modes of seeing and practicing with painting have arrived in her life, and so it will be. Yes, perhaps a lecture performance can be a bit like its own creation myth. What happened since then? Became calmer and more explosive. New modes of seeing and living. Beyond Harvard. There was the end of performance activity, performance within the frame of the painting. The architecture, dancing in the dark, the inner commission has slowly replaced the other. A work that is inherently already a critique, and therefore can only be presented as critique. Yet, deconstructing itself by that, it is painting beyond itself. Painting beyond the opening. Beyond, beyond. D exhibitions followed. There was the double session, Centre de Recherche, Jean-Pauvin, Maquis, and Fortune. To be a nuisance, a challenge, in a good way. Kosowski's Malevolent, Lucian Freud's Crust, Balthus's Champauvent. To learn how to mess with time, and how to relate to the world on one's own time. Each thought might be one gesture, each gesture a thought. Kosowski on Nietzsche, the outlines of the seductive smile of the Sphinx. Intensity, excitation, tonality. Such is thought independent of what it expresses or could express, and its applications in turn rouses other intensities, other excitations, other tonalities. From then on, Nietzsche wanted to exercise his thought from the viewpoint of the emotional capacity, and no longer the conceptual capacity. At the limit where knowledge offers itself as a resource for acting, no longer for the peace of the understanding, but at the mercy of the alluring forces of chaos. Moving from performance to non-performance, moving between brutality and fantasy, offering sensual exaggeration, confronting one's destiny, while becoming le passage and la chambre a certain nakedness, rawness, a despair, painting as subject. Fortune intervenes to help them, painting subject, discover each other. With consciousness unbound, unending, with bodies against gravity, against the rules of taste and convention, behavior, she takes the strangest pleasure in painting beyond painting. The interior of thinking and motivation is turned outside, offers itself up. It is longing and waiting for Auflösung, Aufhebungen, some kind of resolution. Painting, a state of suspension in all creatures, paintings dealing with in time. Time of a painting. A painting of devotion. Spending time inside time, activating. Social historical gender distributions. Recharging with painting. Time beyond and sex beyond. Painting. A passionate liaison in the room in which she had set up the action. 
of her quasi-erotic and quasi-religious struggles. To give painting back an anonymous, universal sense. To reach deep desires to connect to a past, shocked by manic fury littered with fragments of basic emotions. Those things that had been rejected by modernity as well as by critical investigations and postmodern interpreters of image productions, kitsch, tableau vivant, sensuality. Possibility of an obsessive reception, a way of dealing with painting and painting history, eroticized viewing, reflecting, to reveal glimpses into the psychic processes involved in the making of art, the making of painting in particular, to an audience, painting as medium for the special transport of difficult matter, painting that deals with and somewhat determines the conditions under which we experience it. Body of the artist, site of projection, artist, working to abandon the site or to offer a site beyond the existing one. In that moment, create a mental space, like a fresco, to decide to believe in the enigmatic qualities, the opposite of riddle and solution. After some time, she started revisiting Poussin, then his Phaeton painting, the Wheel of Fortune, the Seasons All in One, additive composition, inner tension building, no results, illogical. Instead of a narrative of dramatic action that might address feelings of the recipient, we deal with the philosophical reflections of the tragic moment. Within the space of the painting, every given thing turns toward its opposite. Imagine a memory thinking through history. Whose wishes are we being shown? Determine one's own wishes in terms of fantasy. In the old days, the gravestone sarcophagus was an image of memory, then it became painting. Now is another move. Reverse travel from code back to painting. After painting has been absented and abstracted into space numerous times, even countable in the seven sacrament project now. Beyond, beyond painting, a vehicle to enter those zones that are no longer reachable like the burning orifice of an interior secret chamber, relearning time, procedure, struggle, relearn tenderness as something that causes a painting to shine and to become, where the act of viewing becomes the act of love or bewitchment, being subjected to a complex of pictorial forces, enter non-contemporary painting. The windowless, barely furnished room, its walls naked except for the palette, its doors a mere frame that opens into nothing, leads to no visible space. It is indeed a shabby garret in which the drawing lesson takes place. As such, this interior announces itself as an alternative to the instructional space of the academy in a social as much as aesthetic sense. For its deliberate abstraction, nothing like the richly appointed Salle du Modèle, its walls densely hung with art, 
defines it as a space of training for people of modest means, like the individuals featured in the painting, and, one may add, like the young student with his ripped coat in Chardin's first canvas on the subject. In offering the depicted student an opportune space for a close-up, solitary experience with the model, the interior of the drawing lesson not only emphasizes the individual subjective dimension of training, but also contravenes the hierarchical system that governed the crowded space of instruction at the academy, with its seating arrangement privileging the sons of academicians and the members of artistic dynasties. By choosing a different location for his scene, the painter reappropriates instruction for those who were, as Chardin was in his youth, not so privileged, and thus also reimagines both the space and the self of the artist in training. In this regard, the drawing lesson comes close to the blind beggar, with which it was shown at the salon, likening art-making to a subjective, interiorized, and socially situated exercise. A blind man's craft. Modern color, a new paradigm. From antiquity to the modern age, color has been conceived and defined through various oppositions, all of which were hierarchical. Between intelligence and sensibility, reality and appearance in Plato, between substance and accident in Aristotle, between primary and secondary qualities in Descartes or Locke, and in the 19th century between objective and subjective properties. Each of these oppositions is inscribed in a different metaphysical and epistemological frame or context. To define color as an accident is different from defining it as a secondary quality or a subjective property. But all these definitions refer to the same metaphysical pattern or paradigm at work in the field of painting both in the distinction between color and drawing and in the distinction between color and light. To stress that painting is an art del disegno, as Vasari did, was both a social and philosophical argument in favor of recognizing painting as a liberal art. The definition of color as a secondary, unessential quality was used by the Poussinists, the partisans of drawing in the 17th century against the Rubenists, supporters of the supremacy of color, to accuse them of threatening the dignity of painting. In this essay, I will not concentrate on the important and well-known debate between disegno and colore, which first took place in Italy and then in France in the 17th century. Instead, I want to focus on the pictorial distinction between light and color, and its metaphysical and theological ground. This distinction refers to the opposition between pure visibility, purely intelligible, spiritual, immaterial visibility, and impure visibility, material, physical visibility. In other words, to an opposition between what is seen with the eyes of the soul and what is seen with the eyes of the body. But it's also based on the cosmological distinction between sky and earth, between the sublunary world and the superlunary world, 
This opposition between celestial and earthly light is perfectly clear in the composition of Jan van Eyck's painting, The Virgin and Child with Chancellor Roland. But light is not only opposed to color, it's also distinguished from and linked to shadow. The distinction between light and shadow is theological as well as pictorial. Let me recall the first verses of the Bible describing the creation of the world. In the beginning, God made the heaven and the earth. And the earth was waste and without form. And it was dark on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving on the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God, looking on the light, saw that it was good. And God made a division between the light and the dark, naming the light day and the dark night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. One can read numerous notations about this question of light and shadow in Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks. Shadow is of the nature of darkness. Light on an object is of the nature of a luminous body. One conceals and the other reveals. They are always associated and inseparable from all objects. Shadow is the diminution alike of light and of darkness and stands between darkness and light. Shadow partakes of the nature of universal matter. Darkness is absence of light. Shadow is diminution of light. Light is the chaser away of darkness. Shade is the obstruction of light. This conception of light and shadow implies that the painter imitates the gesture of God, giving birth to forms and separating light from shadow. This idea was central to a conference given by the painter Philippe du Champagne on June 7, 1670, at the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, which was devoted to the question of shadow. For Champagne, as for Da Vinci, the painter using the shadows to distinguish one figure from the other, to imitate the divine model, whose first gesture of creation was to separate light from shadows. Champagne develops an analogy between the creation of the universe and the painter's work. Before the creation of the universe, not all was darkness in the vast spaces where it was created. And though God had not made them, this divine worker knew so well how to make use of them to reveal and distinguish all his works, that, though they were nothing in and of themselves, being but a true void, nevertheless this divine artisan made use of them so admirably that he turned this nothing and this void into that which distinguishes and pulls from confusion all that he did, putting an agreeable order in all objects, and into that which serves as a rest for sight. As there is nothing more truthful than to say, if all objects were equally lit, there would be a terrible confusion in all things. Without shadows, all would appear flat, even the roundest bodies. The theological and metaphysical meaning of the way Champagne distributes light and shadow in his painting are clearly perceptible in the differences between his two crucifixion paintings, one in the Louvre and the other in the Musée de Grenoble.
In the Louvre painting, Jesus raises his eyes toward the sky as if to say, Why did you abandon me? But the crucifixion painting in Grenoble is much more powerful because of the remarkable invention in the painting, to use a term familiar in 17th century art history. Christ is alone, abandoned, in a deserted world. Darkness is covering the earth. In the background, only the Temple of Jerusalem can be seen. In contrast to Champagne, Roger de Pile develops a purely pictorial conception of chiaroscuro, overcoming the distinction between chiaroscuro and colorist. For de Pile, chiaroscuro is a part of what he calls the science of colores. All that is color is admirable in Rubens. He has taken the science of chiaroscuro further than any other painter. He makes one feel its necessity. He has reduced to a precept, through example, the means of pleasing the eyes. He harmoniously gathered together his objects in the manner of a bunch of grapes, wherein the illuminated grapes make together but one mass of light, so that those in the shadow make but a mass of darkness, such that the individual grapes form but one sole object, are embraced without distraction and can at the same time be distinguished without confusion. It is this assembly of objects in light that we call group, and how great were the number of figures that entered in the composition of his painting. Yet, one never saw more than three groups, so that vision was never dissipated by a multiplicity of detached and sensitive objects. But he has always in his artifice the industry of hiding it, and there cannot, and there are those who are instructed by his principles who cannot perceive them. In a way, de Pyle already puts into question the distinction between light and color, although not in a scientific way as Newton eventually does, to demonstrate that light is not homogeneous, but heterogeneous, color being an effective decomposition of light. But the fact that for the first time color becomes an object of science undoubtedly constitutes a change of paradigm in the discourse on color. This new scientific paradigm has two aspects. The first one, which is purely Newtonian, concerns the traditional distinction between light and color, and it becomes irrelevant from a scientific point of view. As we know, this part of Newton's theory had important opponents, the most famous being Goethe. The second concerns the existence of subjective colors, in 1743, Buffon made an important discovery. If one stares at a little red square on a white sheet of paper, a light green crown appears around the square. If we stop looking at the red square to look at the white paper, we see very distinctly a bluish-green square. This green square, which is purely imaginary, exists objectively. It exists for the eye. Everybody, under standard conditions, can perceive it. Newton's physics were unable to explain the existence of those imaginary colors. And it's not surprising that Goethe's treatise starts with a study of those imaginary colors. As opposed to physical colors, Goethe called them 
physiological colors, colors that Schopenhauer described as pure effects of the eye. The second approach to color became a major topic of scientific investigation in the 19th century. One could mention, for instance, Chevreau's discovery of the law of simultaneous color contrast while he was director of Gobelin's tapestry factory, or the publication of Helmholtz's treatise on physiological optics in 1867, which was immediately translated and discussed in France. The manifold research developed in those same years in the fields of neurology and psychiatry about sensations or perceptions that exist without external stimuli in the case, for example, of the phantom limb or aberrations of colored perception led to the same conclusion. All of these 19th century investigations put into question the traditional oppositions between subjective and objective, imaginary and real, hallucination and perception. As Hippolyte Ten provocatively put it, we must call external perception a true hallucination. There are very strong correspondences between those new scientific approaches of color and the transformations that occurred in the field of painting, 